we read and study and seek to hear from your Spirit. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. I wanted to talk about, we have a break this week in our normal schedule because um, what I, I'll be very honest, what I do when I plan out sermons is I plan the entire book that we're going to teach, or that we're going to walk through. I plan the whole thing. And then after I've planned the whole thing, I schedule in flexible days because I know myself and I get excited about certain things and they take longer to cover than normal. So often sermons get broken into two last minute because I start ranting up here and it takes forever. And, uh, and you know, that's just the way that it is. So we have a flex day here that nothing got ran into. So now instead of diving right into Second Thessalonians, which we're going to do next week, we're going to start, we're going to take a break and read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 21. So let's read it first, and then we'll dive into talking about it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So this passage changed my life. It changed my life, this, this particular passage. Um, Ephesians is by far my favorite book in the Bible. Well, it goes back and forth between Ephesians and whatever I'm teaching in the moment. But Ephesians is one that is always at the top of the list. It's always been a book that I have loved and enjoyed. It's, been, it's the first book that I wrote anything about. I wrote a book about Ephesians, and it's on the back table if you want it. Uh, I have one copy back there. I've ordered more. They'll be coming in, but you can have it. It's, it's a beautiful, wonderful book, and it's divided in two. It, it has theology at the front and practice at the back. It's got three chapters that are basically heavy theology, and then three chapters that are essentially why that matters. And this particular passage changed my life. I, uh, I, I was thinking to myself that Jesus was an idea, a concept, a, a, a person we thought of as something deep and heavy and, and something to be grabbed hold of and, and weighty matters to sit and think and ponder. And I would find myself frequently thinking deeply about who Jesus was and what he had done and how he had accomplished salvation and and the nature of man and how we had changed and how God had altered us and changed us. And then somebody would have a need and I would be oblivious to it or ignore it because I was so deep in thought about who Jesus was. Or somebody would ask me about salvation and I would talk for an hour and a half about some particular theological point and exhaust the hearer. And they would leave going, well, now I don't know anything more about salvation. Uh, Or somebody would express a need that they had or or something, and I would would pass over it in, in favor of a debate over whether or not you had one or two natures. And... I found that theology was obsessing, and then I came to this passage. I came to this passage, and I saw something, and it wasn't the first time I had seen it. You see, I was raised by missionary parents who knew, uh, who knew what to say. Like we, I knew these things. They weren't foreign to me. I knew that theology 
had to have practice in order to matter. I knew that understanding Jesus had to mean something. I knew that. I knew that reading the Bible was pointless if it didn't mean anything, if it didn't change you. I knew that. What, uh, what I had failed to do was put it into practice. And so I came across this passage sometime when I was in high school, came across this passage and read it and saw this phrase. Look carefully then how you walk. For three chapters, Paul spent talking about theology. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. He talks about grace. He talks about sovereignty. He talks about predestination. I know that that scares some people. Relax. He talks about predestination. He talks about uh, the nature of a Christian. He talks about the nature of an unbeliever. He talks about the nature of the Spirit in you. This is Romans in miniature. This is the book of Romans in miniature. It's a shortened version of Romans. And, and it's a intense and heavy... If you're going to shorten... I don't know if you've ever read Romans. If you're going to shorten Romans, that means you're packing a ton into three chapters. I mean, that's nine chapters of Romans. Or actually, 11 chapters of Romans, if you're a stickler with where you divide. Like, 11 chapters of Romans packed into three. And so, he... Paul writes this, and, and as we read, we see this, this theology, and then we see unity in chapter 4, where we're to be unified, and then we're supposed to walk in love together. And here in chapter 5, verse 15, it says this, look carefully how you walk. And that phrase jolted me out of my theological pompousness in the moment. We all, by the way, walk through periods of theological pompousness. You shouldn't be surprised when somebody admits it. There are moments when our intellect takes over and our heart is completely missing. And this was one of those moments for me. And, and my, in that moment, I saw this phrase, look carefully then how you walk. And I realized all of a sudden that all the theology in the world, all the great theology in the world, the best theologians in the world, if it means nothing to their daily lives and their, and their actions and who they are, it means nothing. You can have the best theological underpinning of anyone. You can read and write in Greek and Hebrew. You can understand Aramaic. You can have the academic fortitude of a thousand professors. And yet, if it does not impact the way you walk, then it's useless. And to be thrown out. So let us not be like those people who do that. And when we come to moments when our theology and intellect trumps our heart, we, we should remember this has to matter. It has to matter. So when we see something in Scripture, it must matter. The first three chapters of Ephesians are theology and the beauty of who Jesus is and how we become like him and the glory of salvation and God's love for us and the power of the spirit. And then the, a prayer at the end of chapter three to move for the spirit of God to move in us. And then um, this passage here caught me for the first time and along with it, the in hymns. In hymns in this book caught me. There's in him in chapter 1, verse 7, we have redemption. In him, in Christ, in chapter 1, verse 9, we have the plan that was set forth before time in Christ. And then in 1, verse 11, in him we obtain an inheritance. And then in 1, verse 13, in him we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we are made alive in him so that we could do works that he prepared in advance before us. So there's a purpose to your living. There's a purpose to your living. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he says it in the theological section. There's a purpose to him bringing you to life. You become Christian. You become made alive in him. You once were dead and now made alive. And then he gives you work to do. Gives you work to do. In Christ, 
We have been brought near in chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. And we are no longer in the flesh, but now in the spirit in chapter 2, verse 11 through 16. We are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's where your identity is found. If you are a Christian and you believe in Christ, you are in the spirit. Your identity is no longer found in the flesh. You are in the the Spirit. You are joined in the community of Christ, in the community of Christ, in chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. In Him, you are being built together into one dwelling place for the Spirit, in verse 22 of chapter 2. In Him, we have confidence and access to God, in chapter 3, verse 12. In Him, we have access and we have confidence and access to God. In chapter 3, verse 12. So that's the theology point. Those in hymns jump out at you when you read them carefully. And if you notice, all of them have to do with your living differently. And then you come to chapter 4. And it says, so if all this is true, chapter 4, verse 1, walk in him. Walk. It says, therefore, I therefore a prisoner... For the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So walk in Him. There's a walk, a lifestyle, that bears out the truth of who Jesus is. There's a lifestyle that bears out a truth of who Jesus is. We live differently. Remember, whenever you see the word walk in the New Testament, it's the word meaning a general practice of life. It doesn't mean every single moment perfectly. It means a general pattern of life. We walk in a manner worthy to which we were called, of which we were called generally. Not every step is perfect. Not every step, you're not going to nail it every time. But you walk in a manner generally towards righteousness. And as you walk towards righteousness, you see more and more that you are less and less what you used to be and more and more who he made you to be. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that you can have. Oh, there's an awful theology that circulates in our world today that says you cannot live a holy life. It's an awful theology. And it's a, it's a prize of the adversary. It's his, his delight to convince Christians that they are still in slavery. But you have been set free by Jesus Christ. You've been set free in the Lord to be able to walk in Him. You have been made free for good works that He prepared to do, that He prepared for you to do in advance. He is God and He has made it so that you can live a holy life. You are capable of it now. Because Christ has cleansed you, has cleansed you past tense, and is cleansing you present tense. And He will continue to cleanse you until the day of glorification. Remember we read about this in 1 Thessalonians. That you are being sanctified. You have been justified you are being sanctified and you will be until you get to the end and are glorified sanctification is like driving you started driving at one point you continue driving and you will be driving until you get to the destination so this is the idea that you are made holy for the purpose of doing this so we we think about this concept of walk in ephesians walk in a manner worthy in chapter 4 verse 1 In chapter 5, verse 17, do not walk as the world has walked. Do not walk as the Gentiles do, who who give into their lusts and flesh and give into their sinfulness and give into all this wickedness. Do not walk the way that they do. Instead, walk as one who is a child of God. In chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. In chapter 5, verse 18, walk as children of the light. And then in chapter 5, verse 15, we see this phrase, walk as someone who is wise. Walk as someone who is wise. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So we have four, uh, four things in a row here. We have wise versus unwise. We have making the most of the time, which is number two. 
We have number three, understanding versus foolishness. Do not be foolish, but understand what is the will of God. So understanding versus foolishness. And then we have filled with the Spirit versus filled with wine. Those four things there. There's four things, and he starts this with walk. Look carefully how you walk. Literally, watch your walk. That's literally what it says. Watch or look on your walk. How you walk is important. So first he says, not as wise, but as unwise. I mean, not as unwise, but as wise. Romans chapter 6, verse 19 shows us that wisdom is connected to right living. This concept of wisdom in the New Testament is the idea that true wisdom is God-centered and it affects the way you live. It's not simply an accumulation of knowledge that then gets stored on a shelf, but it is rather a knowledge that then becomes a skill or something that is used to advance life, to promote life. So we want to walk as wise. To walk as wise. True wisdom is is God-centered. It is practical, not merely gathering information, but an ability to apply that knowledge to everyday life. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of this wisdom. And knowledge, and the knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of understanding. So we understand that the chief way to attain wisdom is to fear the Lord. Fear as in reverent respect and honor the Lord, but also fear as in a little bit of trepidation. Because he's big and scary. C.S. Lewis puts it well when he says, he is not a tame lion. He's a lion and he's not tame. There are animals on this earth that you can't tame. That's a great illustration. There are animals on this earth that you cannot tame. A lion is one of them. Oh, you see the Instagram posts where people are petting lions. You don't see the Instagram post where they've sedated that lion beforehand. Or they've got a gun pointed at it in case. Just in case. You don't see those in the pictures. But they're there. Zookeepers know you don't mess around in the lion cage. You don't mess around in the lion cage. You don't. You ever wonder why lion cages are so big you cannot get into them? Because people die if they get into lion cages. Lions are not tame animals. They might be unattentive. They might not be concerned with you. But they are not tame. God is not a tame lion. But He's good. He's good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom comes from the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Wisdom comes first from the Word of God. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that the sacred writings or the scriptures give wisdom that leads to salvation. So the word of God leads to salvation. It is what leads us to the wisdom that saves the soul. In Psalm uh, 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the simple wise. We who are simple get wisdom through studying the law of God, the word of God. The first five books are what he's referring to there. First five books of the Bible are what he's referring to there. We get wisdom by reading those and filling ourselves with them. In Psalm 119, 98 through 100, it says this. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Obedience to that word increases wisdom. So first, wisdom comes through the word of God. Second, wisdom comes through the obedience to the word of God. What good is it to read something and then ignore it? Obedience to what you read is what brings more wisdom. 
Note, he says, his commands make me wiser than anyone. So we have this walk as wise, not as unwise. Unwise would be the one who reads and then forgets what he reads and goes on or doesn't read at all. Doesn't learn the word of God at all. Doesn't hear from the word of God. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't gain wisdom. Does not fear the Lord. That's unwise. Wise is the one who fears the Lord and who meditates on his word. Who feeds on the word of God. That's the wise one. And then obeys it. Then obeys it. Second, make the most of the days, most, most of the time, for the days are evil. Make the most use or the best use of the time because the days are evil. This word day is a simple word for day. There's nothing, you can't dance around it. It's the simple word day. Every day is evil. And the word evil here is toiling or exhausting. Man, doesn't that feel right? Doesn't that feel exactly how we feel? That the days are exhausting. They wear you out. They are a toil and a labor. The days are exhausting. We were just speaking this morning about how it feels wild that that March is almost done. March is almost over. We just came into this year. And we're already all the way through March almost. It's crazy. Easter is around the corner. So we've got this intense, exhausting, fast-moving days. The days wait for no one. It just goes and it wears you out. It's evil. It's toiling and exhausting. These days are exhausting, but they're not only exhausting, they're also corrupting. The days will corrupt you by how exhausting they are. They will labor and toil. And this word, this Greek word that indicates that the days are exhausting and corrupting ought to draw our minds back to Genesis 3 and the curse where labor became hard. By the toil of your brow, you will eat bread. I will increase your pain. This, This labor became exhausting. It is toil and it is exhausting labor. We all have to live under the curse of Genesis 3 on this earth. We all have it. Everyone has to struggle under this curse, though for us who are in Christ, we have been saved from it. But we can, and because we've been saved from it, we can push against it. We can push against the labor and toil. The days don't have to be exhausting. We can make the most of them. We can make the most of them because Jesus Christ has rescued us from death. And we are no longer slave to sin, now slave to righteousness. We are free from the things that so bound and tied us up before. We are able to live in holiness. We are in community together by nature of Jesus' work. We are, we are free. All that theology in the first chapter in the first three chapters all of that plays out all that plays out here where we can push against the days and their evil in hebrews chapter 4 verses 9 through 11 it says there remains a sabbath rest for the people of god for whoever has entered god's rest has also rested from his work as god did from his let us therefore strive i love that phrase let us strive Wrestle, struggle. Let us strive, wrestle, and struggle to do what? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same disobedience as the Hebrew people before. We are to strive or struggle for rest. Make the most of your time. Make the best use of your time because the days are pushing against you. But here's the good news. You can make the most of the time. You can push against the days because of what Jesus has done. Because he has brought you into Sabbath rest with him. So how do we make the most of the time? First, I think by remembering that our aim is eternity and not here. We make the most of our time by remembering that we are doing the most for our time here for eternity. 
remember the analogy. Most people spend their whole life, well, they spend from, from here to here, working and slaving away so that for the last 15, 20 years of their life, they can be retired and leisure and rest, right? That's how most of the world thinks about life. You spend this much of your life to enjoy this much. That's not how Christians think about their life. Christians spend this much of their life so they can enjoy eternity. We spend this much of our life in, in pursuit of eternity. Imagine a line that goes from here and just never stops. That's our goal. Our goal is not in this block. It's next. So how do we make the most of our time? By remembering that all of this, all of this, is simply preparation for that, for eternity. There's a wonderful book I would commend to you called Heaven by Randy Alcorn in which you will have dispelled the things in your mind that the adversary has, has showed us of a guy on a harp with, on a cloud. Cling, cling. You know, that's not heaven. That's not a picture of heaven. I don't like the harp. There's no reason that, that would even be there. There's no... Like it's, Weird. Weird. That's a weird vision. Or, or the never-ending church service. That's not heaven either. I love church services. That's not heaven. Heaven's so much more than that. You have jobs in heaven. You will learn and grow. You will make new things. Heaven is incredible. And it just gets bigger and bigger as the infinite God of all creation continues to be infinitely creative. And you get to be there. Heaven is marvelous. And what are we supposed to do? According to 1 Thessalonians 4, we are to encourage one another with these thoughts about the return of Christ and heaven. This ought to be on our lips. We ought to be thinking about eternity. So how do we make the most? By remembering our aim is in eternity. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on the things that are above. The things that, that are above. Not on the things that are on this earth. So the second thing. First, we, we make the most by remembering our aim is heaven. So we ask that question of what does this have to do with eternity? That question is important. What, does your, what do your finances have to do with eternity? What do your skills have to do with eternity? What are you doing now to invest in people for eternity? Remember Jesus' story of the dishonest manager and how he ends it. Make Friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. Make friends of yourself for eternity. You are preparing for eternity. This is the joy of a Christian. How do we make the most? We remember that our aim is eternity. Second, we remember to prepare our minds for action. Being sober-minded. Setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded. Setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's Peter's urging to us in 1 Peter that we are to be prepared. Setting for action. So how do we make the most of our time? We prepare ourselves for action. Being sober-minded. Being focused. Having a goal. The grace of Jesus Christ. We have this goal. Third, we make the most of our time by pursuing beauty and truth. By pursuing beauty and truth. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Think on these things. We prepare our, we, we aim at eternity, we prepare our minds for action, and we pursue beauty and truth. Third, or fourth, rather, we run the race that is set before us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Let us run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. We are to run at Jesus. Your life is to be headed in the direction of knowing Christ of knowing Him more and being more like Him. Fifth, we pursue community. 
So how do we make the most of the time? We pursue community. You live in a day and age when the world tells you to hide yourself behind pictures that look good. You live in a day and age when the world tells you not to go talk with people. It tells you to shelter yourself. Where it gives you the excuse of saying, maybe you're an introvert. You're not. You're not. Let me just throw that out there. I know what an introvert is. Most of us aren't. Most of us aren't. We want to be because the world tells us that that gives us an excuse not to talk to people. Truth is, you're not an introvert. You just don't like people. Get over it. You'll find yourself being charged up as you get around people. It's true. Now, to be fair, I'll be, I'll be gentle. There are some of us that are introverts. Even an introvert needs a community. Even introverts need people. You weren't designed to go live on an island by yourself. Antony, the great first monk, the first monk that went off into the desert, the desert father, Antony, went off by himself, introverted to the core. Like you read some of what that guy writes and you're like, you don't need, pe- you don't need to be around people. They just mess you up. You, you read some of it and you realize this guy was an introvert. He went off by himself, spent a couple months by himself and went, I need to be around people and immediately came back and he realized there was a balance in his life that he needed. As much time as he could spend by himself with the Lord was great, but he needed to come back and be around people or it meant nothing. It meant nothing and he was depressed and anxious and lonely. What do you think the world is doing to you now by having you hide behind a screen? It's attempting to make you anxious and lonely and depressed. You need people. Even the introverted among us need people. We need people people at some level. Ephesians 4 is all about you living in community with one another. You cannot do the Christian life by yourself. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We have a great cloud of witnesses in, in Hebrews, this great cloud of witnesses we're supposed to go on with. And in Ephesians here, we have a community of faith that we are supposed to latch together with. You are not alone and are not designed to be alone. You are designed for community. So how do we make the most of the time? By remembering our aims eternity, by preparing our minds for actions, by pursuing beauty and truth, by running the race that was set before us. Remember, this race is set before you. You simply live life and God unfolds it as you walk. And then finally, pursuing community. Then we have this next one. So we've got one and two down. We've got Live as wise, and we've got make the most of the time. And then we've got, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be foolish or ignorant, but understand what is the will of the Lord. This word ignorant and foolish is used over in Luke chapter 12, verse 20, by the man who saves up for retirement his entire life and then dies. He saves up for retirement. He, he has multiple grain storages. And he's like, I can, I can do nothing now. I don't have to work. I can, I can relax. And he dies not considering his neighbor's needs and not considering the needs of his kids. It says, who's going to get the grain? Like, who's going who's gonna to do it now? You're gone. Jesus in that parable talks about this man as foolish and ignorant. The same word is used again in 1 Corinthians 15, 36. The person who considers death man's final end. This is a foolish man, someone who considers death the end, that that is his final end. The spiritual man, the believer in Jesus Christ, understands that death is not the end. Death is not the end, but rather it is a step to a different place. Either life eternal or death eternal. But eternal is on both of those. So we see that the ignorant or foolish one is one who does that. Also in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 19, and Proverbs 10, verse 1, and then 11, verse 29, we have this same concept used, Septuagint Greek, and the, the ignorant or foolish here is used as the unlearned, the one who has not learned the word of the Lord, who does not fear God. That's who this is. This is the one who is unlearned. Then we have do not be ignorant or foolish, 
but understand what is the will of the Lord. Understand is to comprehend or perceive here, organizing facts into a whole that are applicable. There's a very critical statement there. When we understand something, we organize the facts or the knowledge, we organize it into something that we can use and apply. To be uh, simply filled with knowledge is a waste. It must be something that can be applied. It must be something that can be applied. One must consider the whole counsel of God in order to do this well. To understand what the will of the Lord is, you must consider the whole counsel of the Word of God. That's a preacher way of saying read the whole Bible. Read the whole thing. Don't pick and choose. Read the whole thing. If you read the whole Bible, if you read the whole Bible and you seriously approach the entire Bible, reading straight through and read the whole thing, it ought to make you uncomfortable at times. It's supposed to. It's supposed to. You're supposed to wonder why Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in Acts and David gets a slap on the wrist. You're supposed to wonder, why? Why does, why does David, who causes the downfall of the kingdom of Israel, get a smack on the wrist? I mean, he loses a child, but he doesn't die. And he commits a sin that is said in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, he's supposed to be stoned for it. Why does he get forgiven? And Ananias and Sapphira in Acts lie about how much money they gave. They gave a lot, by the way. They just didn't give it all. They said, oh, we gave it all. That's the lie. And they both dropped dead. That's supposed to make you uncomfortable. And the great thing about your pastor is I'm not going to answer that for you. I'm going to make you read the whole thing. And I'm going to make you wrestle with God. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable that the life of Jacob is the life of a rat who gets forgiven over and over and over and gets blessing after blessing after blessing and then finally gets his hip broken and still doesn't get righteous, doesn't become a righteous man, but is rather always covered by the righteousness of God. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to make you recognize that we have a gracious and merciful God and we can't possibly outdo His mercy. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. You're supposed to read the Bible and struggle with Him. God names His people one who wrestles with God. Israel means the one who wrestles with God. That's what God names His people. That's what He calls them. Because for some reason, God likes when we wrestle with Him. God likes when we struggle with Him. And you will too. If you wrestle with God, you will like when you struggle with God. If you genuinely wrestle, you will like when you struggle with God. Understand what is the will of the Lord. In order to do this, you must read the whole thing. You must consider the whole Bible. We learn on Thursdays that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. The best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. Where the Bible speaks about itself, that's where you find the interpretation. No preacher, no pastor, no theologian can supersede the Bible's discussion of itself. When Jesus takes a passage of the Old Testament and tells you what it means, that's what it means. doesn't mean something else. That's what it means. It doesn't matter if it was interpreted incorrectly prior. Jesus has just told you what it means. When Paul takes a passage of the Old Testament and tells you what it means in letters, it's what it means. That's what it means. Don't dance around it. Don't avoid it. Don't point to some Ugaritic or Babylonian text. Nonsense. Point to Jesus and 
And the Bible itself is its own interpreter. It is gorgeous. So we are to understand what the will or God is. So just a couple of passages that help us with this. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says that the will of God is whatever is good, acceptable, and perfect. Whatever is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's innate within us to know, by the way. You, you have it in you to know what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Even pagan tribes know what is good, acceptable, and perfect at their core. God has written these things in the invisible qualities of nature itself. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, we know that the will of God is salvation from Jesus. That is his will. Salvation is God's will. That's his will or his desire. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, your adoption is his desire. Isn't that great? Your being brought into his kingdom is his will. That's his desire. That you would be his. You'd be his child. That's his desire. Not just something that he planned like on a clipboard and said, okay, I checked that one off. But his desire, his will, his longing. Thelema is the, is the Greek word. His, his will for you is that you would be adopted into his kingdom. In Ephesians 6, verse 6, the integrity of your actions are his will or the holiness of your actions are his will. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, we read this uh, a couple weeks ago, that sanctification is his will for you, that you would be holy and set apart, that you would be his holy, set apart, holy, pure, righteous. In every, in every conceivable meaning of the word sanctification, that you would be holy in your lifestyle, in your uh, pursuits, in your mental thoughts, in your, even in your morality, sexually pure and holy, you would be holy and sanctified in every way there in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And then in chapter 5, verse 18 of Thessalonians, that you would be sanctified, culminating in rejoicing, prayer, and gratitude. That that would result in rejoicing, prayer, and gratitude. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, it's the will of God that you would be holy. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21, it's the will of God that you would be holy and do good things. That you would do good works. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, that you would do what is right is the will of God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2 through 19, that faith would result in holiness over and against the lusts of men. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, that those who do the will of God would get eternity. Would get eternity. So we've got those three things down. We've got um, live as wise. We've got make the most use of the time. And we've got understand what is the will of God. The will of God. Now, number four. Do not get drunk on wine, which is debauchery, or if you're King James only, dissipation. It's a great word, dissipation. No one knows what that means nowadays, but it works. Dissipation, debauchery. Most people don't know what debauchery means, but we've got those two words there, and they, they say, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to this, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Drunk on wine here, is called dissipation or debauchery, and it's connected to this idea of wastefulness or squandering. It should draw your mind to the prodigal son who goes out from the father and squanders everything. That's debauchery. That's, that's dissipation. That's what he's talking about here. Getting drunk on wine leads to debauchery or dissipation. The issue is that this is a wastefulness. It's a wastefulness or a squandering. The prodigal son squanders what he's given, and this obviously has a sense of lawlessness to it, or disorderliness, and, and an arrogance against the law. It's a wicked, it's an intentional wastefulness of what God has given us. That's why he's using this, this illustration of alcohol, because it's so prevalent. It's so obvious. It's obvious when somebody is drunk, that they've wasted stuff. They're so obvious to us that we use the term wasted to describe somebody who's drunk. They got wasted. We use that term in our language because it's obvious. This is, 
This is what this is intended to talk about. They have squandered a good and perfect gift. Something God created that was beautiful and intended for good things. Intended to be the blood of Christ. Intended to be the image of Jesus' salvation and covering you over you. Anytime you drink the fruit of the vine, right? Anytime you drink that, you ought to remember Christ. You ought to remember Christ. And what does it say when you're getting drunk on that? Just a warning. We read in 1 Corinthians this last Thursday, right, that people who were getting drunk before communion or before lunch, which I'm so thankful none of you show up drunk for church lunch and communion. Just side note. But the, the people who were getting drunk on the wine that was intended to, to symbolize the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us, the people who were doing that. Paul says, some of you guys are dying early. Getting sick and dying because of this attitude towards Christ. This is serious. This is a serious issue. And he says, this is debauchery. This is, this is dissipation. This is, this is awful. This is obviously wicked lawlessness and arrogance towards Christ. So don't do that. Don't waste the things God has given you. Don't squander them. Don't don't do that. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Every other Eastern religion tells you to empty yourself. Every other one. Empty your mind and join nirvana. Empty your yourself and join the the Bhagavad Gita of the clouds. Empty yourself and and be void and and find find peace in void. They can't find peace. They never find peace. In fact, even their own writings espouse that you will not find peace. You will not find peace. Safety, you might find. Peace, you will not. Indeed, we see this incredible picture that you will not find peace apart from the Spirit of God. You must be filled. Christianity, as opposed to every Eastern religion, Christianity tells you, fill yourself with the Spirit. Fill yourself with the Word of God. Did you know the Bible never says, it says it in one place. It says to read this book out loud in one place. And that's an urging to the church as a whole to read the Bible out loud. Everywhere else in Scripture where it talks about the Scripture, it says to feast, to meditate, to lay on, to build your foundations on, to lay it before you at all times, to put it on as frontlets before your, before your eyelids, to put it before you at every moment of the day. It never once does it say read the book. Never once is it that simple. No. We are to do more than simply read. The problem is, as a pastor, in this culture, in America, if I talk to somebody who says they were raised a Christian, I can almost guarantee you they never read their Bible. I can almost guarantee it. I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because I know a lot of people. Oh, they may have read it once. They may have read it. They may have read a couple books out of it. They may have even, they may even read it for the few minutes at church every week that they go and it's read out loud to them. And they, yeah, they read it. Or if they have children, they might read a children's Bible. But they don't read the Bible. So, so I am reduced frequently and you are reduced. We as a church are reduced to telling people, if you just read your Bible. The reality is that we need to do more than read it. It's your life breath. It's your life breath. Be filled with the Spirit. The most obvious way to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the incarnate Word of God. To be filled with the Word that brings life. Psalm 1 verse 2, meditate on this thing day and night. Right? Meditate on it. Romans 12 to be renewed by the Word of God. Be renewed by it. So you fill yourself, the most obvious is to be reading the Word of God and feasting on it. 
The second way to fill yourself is to strive to be who you are and not who you were. The second way to be filled with the Spirit is to strive to be who you are and not who you were. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 says you used to be something different. Now you've been made righteous. You are no longer dead, but have been made alive in Christ Jesus. Four works that he prepared in advance for you to do. In Philippians chapter, I mean in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 24, it says this. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupting through deceitful desires. So you were taught this. This is past tense. You were taught to put off the old self. This is past tense. This is who you are. If you became a believer, you were taught to put off the old self, which is corrupt and deceitful through desires, and to be renewed. You were taught to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Strive to be that person, not who you used to be. Strive to be that person, not who you used to be. That's the second way. The third way that we find ourselves being filled with the Spirit is Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, which says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We are of the Spirit. We are no longer of the flesh. We are of the Spirit, and we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. That's who we are. That's who we are. It's an identity. That's who you are. You set your minds on the Spirit. Fourth, you ask the Lord to fill you with the Spirit. You want to be filled with the Spirit, you ask the Lord to do it. He fills you with the Spirit. The Spirit is, the free, is free to go wherever He desires. John chapter 3, verse 8. The Spirit goes wherever it wants, just like the wind. It blows wherever it wants. So how do you find the Spirit? You ask the Lord. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. God says, Jesus says, do, do you think that God is less of a father than you? You who are wicked, who who would give your kids some bread if he asked for it, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is good and perfect, do much more for you? He's not going to give you a snake if you ask for a fish. He's not going to give you a rock if you ask for bread. He's a good Father who gives you the things you ask for. So ask Him to fill you with the Spirit. Pray. And this is why Paul says over and over in his letters, pray continuously. Fifth, how do you fill yourself with the Spirit? Well, you get around Christian community. You get around Christian community. You get around other believers. John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 says that no one has ever seen God, but when we love one another, His presence is manifest among us. His love is made known among us. He is, we know Him and we grow in Him and we're filled with Him when we live in community together. So we've got these four things. How do you look carefully how you walk? How do you do this? How do you pay attention to your walk? You live as wise. You make the most use of your time. You understand the will of God. You get filled with the Spirit. And then the result of being filled with the Spirit here is a joy for us to see. Look at it. Verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You have three things there. You have singing spiritual songs, hymns, and songs to one another. Now, people make a big deal about those three different things. And I want you to understand, Paul doesn't make a big deal about the three different titles. We like to make a big deal about those because of the worship wars that have happened in the last 30 years of Christianity, or 40 or 50 years, I don't know, like 70 years of Christianity, where we argue about what type of music you should sing at church. Did you know that that argument started or has been since the beginning of the church? Did you know that that has been since the beginning of the church? Ambrose of Milan instituted hymns instead of chants in his church. 
and there was a riot. Literal riot, like they wanted to burn down the church. There was a riot because he instituted hymns. The queen of the area surrounded the church with her army and threatened to burn it down. And Ambrose walked out onto the porch of the church and said, Dear queen, you are welcome to come in and join us as we sing this hymn. And he turned around and walked back inside. And she was so befuddled, she didn't know what to do. And so she left. But they were angry because he had gone from singing chants in worship to singing hymns. This is not a new argument. But it is still just as petty as it has always been. It is not a new argument. It is still just as petty as it has always been. Who cares what style of music is played on Sunday morning? No one. The only music that should be played is music that glorifies God and exalts his character. Paul is not making a comment about the type of music you sing and play in church. He is trying to cover all the bases. He's trying to cover all the bases. Spiritual songs, songs, hymns, that you would sing everything. That you would sing psalms, that you would sing spiritual songs, that you would sing hymns, that they would just burst forth from you. That this is the result of being filled with the Spirit. That being filled with the Spirit results in the poetry of the heart coming out to people. That the spirit, that this being filled with the Spirit overflows in worship to God. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The next time you hear somebody go, well, Paul said psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, so this type of music can't be involved in there. Tell them no. Tell them that's ridiculous. This is the result of the Spirit filling you. If the Spirit fills you, you burst forth in song. And I don't mean, like, you're not going to walk around going, I can only imagine. No, you're going you're gonna to walk up to people and you're going to be filled with the Spirit. And so what's going to come out of you is praise to the Father. That's his point. That's his point. So the result of being filled with the Spirit is singing. And notice to who? To whom? Who's it addressed to? To the Lord. Making melody to the Lord with your heart. Making melody to the Lord with your heart. When we are in communion together as Christians and we are making melody together, that's what results. Melody to the Lord in the heart. He is the object of our affection. Second result of being filled with the Spirit is giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a constant theme in Paul's writing that we give thanks always and in everything, everything and always. And we talked about this in 1 Thessalonians. You want to learn a spirit of gratitude. You want to cultivate gratitude. First thing you do, make a list of all the things you love. Make a list of all the things that you're thankful for to God. And then make a list of all the things that you're not thankful for to God and thank Him for those. Make a list of all the things you're not thankful for and thank Him for those. I mean, I can start you off. start not thankful for early mornings. Thank you, Lord, for an early morning. You will cultivate gratitude by thanking him for things you're not thankful for. You will cultivate a spirit of gratitude by thanking him for, not, for things you're not thankful for. And how do you do this? You do this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the third and final result of being spirit-filled is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. A spirit-filled person has no room for arrogance or pride when relation to others. A spirit-filled person has no room for arrogance or pride in relation to others. There is no hierarchy in the person who is filled with the Spirit. There's only Jesus. There's only Jesus. There's only reverence for Him. There's only reverence for him. The lowest child can speak into the life of a spirit-filled person. The lowest child can be used by God in the spirit-filled person and to the spirit-filled person. The most cantankerous old person can be used in the spirit-filled person's life. There is no room for pride or arrogance in the spirit-filled person. There is only mutual submission and love for one another because of reverence 
for Christ because Christ has done it. Oh, that we would be Spirit-filled. That we would be a people who are filled with the Spirit of God. This passage changed my life. It changed who I was. It made me see that there was more than simple theological reflection to delight the soul, but that there was a pursuit of holiness and God's name and God's worth. Oh, that it would change us as well, that we would see that we are more than a collection of theological points of view, but we are people who pursue Christ with all that we are, loving this world and changing everything we touch. That everything we touch would be changed by the love of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we pray this morning that you would be glorified in everything. That you would get the glory and the credit for all things. And that we would be your people. And that you would love.